My name is Anna Orberry. I'm Johanna Tilkanen. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2020, the UK is hosting the annual UN Climate Change Conference, also known as the Conference of the Parties, where politicians and experts from across the world gather to cooperate on addressing the threat of climate change. Since the 2015 edition, global cooperation on climate change has come under strain. At the same time, the need for urgent action in the face of global climate emergency is becoming more evident day by day. 2019 saw large-scale public demonstrations across the globe, from Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future student marches to the Extinction Rebellion protests here in London. In this podcast, we're exploring the opportunities to revive global action on climate change and asking how different states are looking to shape the climate agenda in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow. Hello, welcome to The Climate Briefing. You are listening to a group of Chatham House researchers. Oh, I can't really claim to be a researcher, actually. I work in the comms team here, but I'm joined by two researchers, so we do at least have some expertise in the room for this new series on climate change uh, in the run-up to the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow later this year. should be a really exciting series and um, just thought we should begin with a few introductions. So I'm Ben. I am a communications manager here at Chatham House. With me throughout the whole series, which is incredibly exciting, well, I have Anna. And Johanna. Um, so Anna, what do you do at Chatham House? So I'm a research analyst in the Energy, Environment and Resources programme. What does a research analyst do? So at the moment, I'm working a lot on our diplomatic briefing series, which you will be hearing more about in this podcast. And I also organise a big conference on illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing and work on another uh, research project. And I started working at Chatham House six months ago. Uh, before that, I was working for the Swedish government. Oh, cool. What did you do there? I worked at the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs, uh, with most recently with global ocean issues. And uh, Johanna, what do you do here at Chatham House? So I'm project manager at Energy, Environment and Resources Programme. And in addition to working on this diplomatic briefing series on COP26, I work on our circular economy projects. Massive project. Broadly, it's like the idea of reusing, recycling. Making more use of the resources, designing our waste. That's the sense. Okay, cool, cool, cool. We've already mentioned this diplomatic briefing series, so tell me a bit more about that. So at the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme, we're organising this diplomatic briefing series on climate change in the run-up to the COP26 this year. And the focus of this briefings is to explore climate action around the world and what different countries are doing about climate change. Fascinating. So Anna, why don't you tell us a bit about what we're going to be doing on the climate briefing? We're going to be releasing the highlights, essentially, from our diplomatic briefings. And we're going to be covering a range of different subjects, both what certain countries are doing to combat climate change and Uh, Some of the issues are going to be more focused on thematic topics such as climate finance and industry decarbonisation. And it's not just highlights, is it? It's more like behind the scenes, exclusive interviews with with the experts that are working on this. Yes, that's true. So we're just going to do a little segment now where we increase everyone's general knowledge on climate change. Because to forewarn you, we've got two fascinating interviews this week. But there is a little bit of technical language, so we just wanted to lay out some terms for you so that everyone is clear. So just to begin with, Anna, what is COP? What does it stand for? 
So the COP is the UN's uh, climate change meeting, and it is the most important multilateral forum for uh, discussion on climate change. All right, so that's COP. Now, another term that we're going to be dealing with a lot is the Paris Agreement. So what is the Paris Agreement? So the Paris Agreement is an international agreement that was adopted at COP21 in Paris in 2015. And essentially, it's all about enhancing the global response to climate change. In a nutshell, the Paris Agreement seeks to limit the rise in the global average temperature and to support those negatively affected by climate change. The Paris Agreement has several goals, but the most well-known one is that the rise in the global average temperature should be kept to well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels, and that efforts should be made to limit the rise to 1.5 degrees. Okay, gotcha. Now, we're going to get a bit more technical here, Johanna. Tell me about NDCs. What What is an NDC? Yes, yeah, so this is what we're going to be using a lot in this podcast. So... NDCs stand for Nationally Determined Contributions, which are the country pledges, so the individual pledges the countries make towards the, or made towards the Paris Agreement. Okay, in terms of cutting carbon emissions? Yes, in terms of climate action, cutting emissions. Okay. The countries need to update their NDCs every five years. Okay, cool. So what is it about 2020? that makes COP26 so significant? So one thing is actually about the NDCs. So this year is the year when the countries need to update their NDCs. The current NDCs, which were pledged just after the Paris Agreement, are nowhere near to stack up to get us on track uh, to the Paris Agreement goals. So the countries really need to increase their ambition this year. Fantastic. So that is the sort of technical jargon done. So let's get on with the interviews. Anna, tell us about this episode. So in this first episode, we're going to be looking at the outcomes of COP25 in Madrid, which took place in December 2019, and which has largely been portrayed as a failure in the media. So we're going to look at what happened there. And most importantly, what does this mean for 2020 and the COP26? So with us today, we have two guests. Uh, The first one is um, Peter Betts, who's an associate fellow here at Chatham House but who previously used to work for the UK government with international climate policy. And our second guest is Archie Young, who's the UK's lead negotiator in uh, the UNFCCC climate negotiations. Sounds great. Let's have a listen. So I'm here with Peter Betts, who is an associate fellow here at Chatham House. And before joining Chatham House, Peter worked for the UK civil service. Uh, among other things, he served as the EU lead negotiator in the UN climate negotiations. And we're really pleased to have you here today, Peter. Welcome. Thanks a lot for coming. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So in the media, COP25 has been portrayed largely as a failure. Do you think that that is an accurate picture? What were the expectations for COP25? And to what extent were these expectations fulfilled? So so I think I think the, the outcome of the Madrid COP was disappointing. I think, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think the first is certainly in the UK, but I think in, in some other places too, the expectations for the COP were way out of proportion to what it was ever going to deliver. So it was never the purpose of the COP, of that COP, the Madrid COP, to, to raise countries' ambition. That's a task that's been assigned to the Glasgow COP this year because Paris provides for this five-yearly cycle where countries raise ambitions every five years. So we had this huge pressure in the streets for action on climate change, 
And of course, so naturally, the media then focused on the COP, but actually that wasn't even something the COP was considering, whether it could raise ambition. So that was one reason why it was perceived to be a failure. I think the second reason was it the COP did have some technical but still important issues it needed to progress on, issues around carbon markets, tra the transparency regime, around so-called loss and damage. And, you know, there, were, there would have been lots of proximate reasons, which I won't go into now unless you want me to, as, as to why negotiators didn't arrive at a solution. But I think there was probably an, an element too that when negotiators and countries know there's a big cop the following year, they will tend to hold their chips much closer to their chest at the cop beforehand to preserve negotiating capital for the cop to come. So I think that's another reason it didn't it didn't deliver everything we hoped. I mean, there there were some modest outcomes on on things like oceans and, and gender and so on, but I think overall it was it was I'm afraid a little bit disappointing. So where does that leave us for COP26? How does this rather disappointing outcome of COP25, uh, what does it mean for, for COP26 in Glasgow? So, you know, I mean, you could, in terms of the impact of, of, of the Madrid COP, you could argue it both ways. On the one hand, you know, arguably we've lost a little bit of momentum. On the other hand, it, it could have kind of galvanized countries and made them realize that, you know, they have to raise their game uh, in, in the Glasgow COP, which is going to have even more media scrutiny and they're going to be more, more in the spotlight and they're going to have to make sure that they deliver. But there is a sort of broader challenge with the COP in Glasgow, which is that the key task given to Glasgow by this five-year cycle in the Paris Agreement, the key task is to raise countries' ambition. And if you look at the basic numbers, countries have a set of targets under the Paris Agreement, for, mostly for the year 2030. Now, if those pledges are delivered, the world might be emitting around about 54 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent in 2030. To be on track for well below two degrees, UNEP says we need to be emitting about 41 billion tons. To be on track for 1.5 degrees, we need to be emitting about 24 billion tons. So there's a so essentially, the world has to reduce its emissions by more than half from now by 2030 in a context where they've been rising broadly until now. And even to be on track for well below two degrees, they need to be reduced by a quarter. You know, I, I don't want to be, you know, a gloomsayer, but, you know, it's pretty well inconceivable that countries collectively or, or individually will take action or remotely on that scale uh, in Glasgow. That is the context for Glasgow. With that in mind, what could a successful outcome look like at Glasgow? So, I mean, I think that's exactly the right question. And it may be that we talk less about a successful outcome and more about progress in Glasgow. And I think it's the you know, UK government, who has the presidency of the COP, is, is thinking broadly in terms of, a, of say, sort of three buckets. So the first bucket would be you get everything you can on country targets. That's not going to be easy, particularly in the current geopolitical conjuncture with you know, China and the US having a trade war. All, all that's happening in the world, you know, is not particularly conducive. Although, you know, even leaving aside, that aside, the scale of the challenge, the climate challenge is huge. But the UK will try and get the most it can on the targets. That's the first thing it will do. 
Second thing is try and get countries to commit to longer term net zero goals by mid-century or, or slightly later for, say, some of the developing countries. China are working on a long-term goal. So, you know, there's something in play there. And then the third element plays around sectoral, the sectors. So probably the biggest one is the one where Mark Carney has been asked to lead, where we will try and introduce frameworks and ultimately requirements for companies and others to mainstream climate risk in their investments and their policies. I think this could have a real impact on what's happening in the real economy. Another one would be around supply chains, getting big companies to make their supply chains increasingly deforestation-free and compatible with climate objectives. And I think there are commercial as well as, as, as climate reasons why companies might want to do that and why you can push companies in that direction. Announcements on things like adaptation and resilience. And another real economy plays like trying to get agreements to phase out coal financing internationally, to phase out, to get earlier dates for phase out of internal combustion engines and so on. I think if you do all those things and then you put a, you know, you basically tell a story that, you know, we, we've banked all of this. This, is, this isn't enough, but it is a substantial contribution and we will aim to come back later, you know, in subsequent rounds to ratchet ambition up even further and also, you know, to promote this, you know, positive change in the real economy that underpins that. And related to that, how important is the role of the UK as COP president? How much can they actually spur countries to increase their ambitions? And do you have any any recommendations for the UK as COP president? So, I mean, the COP president does have a, an important role. Clearly, um, you know, no country, including the UK, can on its own, you know, produce fundamental political and economic change in US, China or wherever it is. I mean, that, but, you know, it's important that the UK... Um, runs the COP in a way that is seen to be neutral and seeking to reach an outcome that is in everybody's interest. I think it, the UK will be expected to walk the walk. So the company, the country, UK is not currently on track, for example, to meet its own targets, its fourth and fifth carbon budgets. It will definitely need to bring forward policies if it's going to carry credibility to be on track for its targets and perhaps and some other areas too where they're going to need to demonstrate their ambition. I think there are areas of policy where the UK is probably uniquely well qualified and private finance is probably one of them where, you know, the combination of the City of London, you know, the expertise on public finance in places like Diffid and elsewhere, having Mark Carney means that we can be, you know, really impactful. I think I think that's another area. In terms of influencing big countries, I think the sort of slight irony is, and I think the, I think people in the UK understand this, we are more likely to be effective if we work with the EU than if we work as the UK. So, you know, if we're asking China to raise its ambition, they're far more likely to listen to the EU. They might not listen to the EU either, but it's a bit more likely they'll listen to the EU. So the most important thing, uh, event, one of the most important events this year is going to be an additional EU-China summit, which has been convened or called by Chancellor Merkel in Leipzig in September President Xi is coming to that. And unusually, you know, not just Chancellor Merkel and the head of the commission, but the the heads of the other member states are coming. I think that's a key moment. If we are going to get China to raise its ambition, that's that's the key opportunity. And I think, you know, similarly with India, I think, you know, we're far more likely to resonate with Mr. Modi if we work closely with 
France, uh, Germany and others. So how should the EU states prepare for that meeting in the best way? So there's a huge amount of work that's been going on. I mean, I think it's I think it's good that Germany have the uh, presidency of the EU in the second half of of 2020. They are they are the biggest member state. Uh, they're also then and in a way they're no they're no longer the most climate the most advanced on climate. They're more the swing now. So countries like you know the UK or France or Sweden or Netherlands are much more forward leaning than Germany uh, in recent years on climate. So Germany is the is the swing and probably has the most credibility with Eastern countries who will need to be brought along. They also have a lot of capacity. There's a lot of conversation happening, you know, government to government, but also on sort of so-called track one and a half, track two dialogues uh, with, uh, with the Chinese to try and explore where solutions or compromises might be. A big challenge for the EU, of course, is that the Chinese will look at the Americans and they don't know who's going to win the US election. And of course, there is a scenario, for example, where, say, an incoming Democrat president would re-enter Paris, but would ask the Chinese to do more. So I think I think there are scenarios, quite likely scenarios, where the Chinese are extremely cautious and move forward only incrementally for a, a range of reasons, including that that's their default modus operandi, but also because uh, because of this sort of waiting to see what the Americans might do. So what could be the implication of the US election later this year? Excellent question. So the US election, presidential election, will be, I think, on the 3rd of November, which is, from memory, about six days before the COP. So it's going to be extremely difficult for the UK presidency to, to plan plan around it and essentially, there are there are two scenarios. You know, the first scenario is that President Trump wins a second term. If that happens, I think it's it's much harder to tell a compelling story about raising ambition in the coming years. That you know, clearly important progress is still happening in the real economy, and you can we can talk about that. But it it is it is less benign because we won't have a federal government probably, you know, driving some of that action. The other scenario is is that a Democrat wins, and you know most of the Democrats um, have, I think all of them, the potential candidates have been have indicated that they will be much more forward leaning on climate than has Mr. Trump. You know, I think in that scenario you could well see a situation where the president elect made it clear that he or she intended to rejoin Paris and to submit a target themselves but that they weren't in a position at that point to say what the target would be and might say need another year to determine what that would be. And so you could see the big debate being rolled forward from Glasgow into the COP next year, for example. And you could certainly see a scenario where the Chinese were and the Indians and others were essentially aiming off for that possibility and therefore low-balling any, any, any raised commitment in order to see what the Americans might ask for next year. So I think I think it is a big source of uncertainty for the COP and, you know, a tricky one for the, the presidency to manage. Thank you very much, Peter, for these interesting insights and for being with us today. Pleasure. So I'm here with Archie Young, who is the UK lead climate negotiator at the Cabinet Office. 
And Archie has been the UK's lead climate negotiator since 2016, overseeing climate negotiations in the UN, the EU, G7 and G20. Thank you for joining us, Archie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. So as the UK's lead negotiator, you must have had a really busy two weeks in Madrid a couple of months ago now at COP25. Could you tell us what, from your perspective, were the key outcomes from those negotiations and what is the impact of those outcomes to COP26? Uh, It certainly was a very busy two weeks in Madrid, uh, which is a culmination as ever of a very busy year. Uh, The COP is where it all comes together, but that is very much the end point of uh, many months of detailed negotiation. It was busy. It was difficult. We overran by 42 hours. Somebody very nicely commented on Twitter that in the final closing plenary, some of us were looking very fresh, given how little sleep we'd had uh, over those few days. Um, But I think the fact that it overran so much, and uh, you'll have heard many of the commentary about it, which highlights uh, how even though some really important items uh, were secured and agreed, uh, and there was a really strong message, um, particularly in terms of uh, countries uh, committing that they will come forward with new ambition next year and businesses saying they'll go further, that there was real disappointment also in that we were unable to conclude several very important negotiation items. Uh, amongst those most prominent were how we put into practice uh, the commitments in Paris about creating a new carbon market, also how we put into practice some of the detailed rules around transparency of reporting so that everybody knows what countries are doing, and also around international climate finance, uh, the fact that we weren't able to uh, conclude uh, discussions in terms of the next steps about the long-term commitments around climate finance. So there's a real uh, sense of recognising what was achieved, but also uh, some of the challenges there. I think it's also important to note the comments that were made about the disconnect, increasing disconnect between the detailed technical negotiations of a multilateral process involving 197 parties and the very strong uh, demands uh, of the people on the street, but also the real clear urgency of the science. So what does that mean for next year? Well, that means that some of those tricky agenda items move forward. So we will have them on the agenda for COP26. But also um, it gives us that uh, pause for thought as to how we can really reconnect the international process with the urgency of uh, the uh, climate science and um, civil society and how we can better communicate and demonstrate the real-world action which is happening in businesses and civil society around the world. Following from that, so in your perspective, what does a successful outcome at COP26 look like and what do you think are the aspects that are needed for that outcome to be achieved? The first thing to note is that COP26 2020 uh, is being regarded as a very important year in terms of climate and environment because we have the uh, Biodiversity COP, uh, COP15, the Convention on Biodiversity, uh, in China the month before COP26. And then we have COP26, the Climate COP, uh, in Glasgow in November. Uh, And also it's important 2020 as a year because that is the year when the Paris Agreement really starts. And it's also important because in the Paris Agreement, 
there is what's called a five-year ratchet. So for Paris, countries put forward their initial pledges, their, their commitments in terms of ambition, and agreed that because when aggregated up, that was nowhere near sufficient, every five years we would review those pledges and the expectation would be that countries would come forward with enhanced ambition. So in that respect, success looks like countries coming forward with enhanced ambition for COP26, which properly reflects the science, but also the incredible advances in terms of reduction and cost of technology uh, and the sharing of solutions that means that hopefully countries can go further faster. Also, we want to see businesses and civil society and regions and cities coming forward uh, with new commitments, but also being able to tell a more coherent story about what those commitments add up to. Then, in terms of the negotiations, well, we have to conclude those items that have been passed on to us from last year, but we also have uh, several important mandated agenda items, and we need to make sure that we push those forward impartially as presidency, but also in a way which is consistent with the need for accelerated climate action. And we want to use the opportunity of COP to shine a spotlight on real-world action, on solutions, on the opportunities uh, and create the conversations to accelerate action, whether that is on uh, the energy transitions that every country is having to go through, or that might be on improving our ability to adapt uh, and build our resilience to climate change, or the important role of nature uh, and nature-based solutions in both uh, reducing emissions but also improving our resilience. And also crucial to all of those elements will be um, how we mobilise the finance, both the public and also the private finance, so that everybody can see that this is not just the right thing to do, but also actually economically beneficial uh, action to take. We need to move away from this supposed trade-off between growth and uh, the environment and actually show that action on one is perfectly, in, is perfectly consistent with action on the other. So indeed, at the end of Madrid COP25, uh, the UK was announced at the, as the COP26 president together with Italy. And you already touched upon this a little bit, but could you tell me a bit more about what, what are the plans uh, for the UK as the COP26 president this year? And how do the next months leading up to the COP look like? The UK is really pleased and honoured to be given the privilege of uh, COP26 president. And we're also really pleased to be able to do so in partnership with Italy. What that will look like in practice is that the UK will preside over the COP and host the COP itself. But Italy, as a really close partner, will host the pre-COP, which is a formal convening of many ministers and other individuals ahead of the COP to address some of the key issues. And they will also hold events on youth and on Africa as well. And we're really pleased to be doing it in partnership in that way. Uh, like I said, it's a real privilege. Uh, it's also um, very clear from COP25 how much is on our shoulders and we have utmost respect for our Chilean colleagues for uh, their presidency of COP25. And there's a, an interesting element of the way that these presidencies work whereby we actually only assume the presidency technically on the first day of our COP. 
And yet, inevitably, the bulk of the work that you do is as incoming presidency. So we have already started putting in practice uh, lots of plans around how we will secure a positive outcome uh, at COP26. We are doing so in close partnership with many countries and uh, other organisations around the world. Uh, There will be a drumbeat of important milestones moving towards uh, November Um, But also, I think it's really important to highlight the fact that as much as uh, the UK holds the presidency, we are also presiding over a multilateral process which works on the basis of consensus, which must respect the balanced demands and interests of all of the countries present. And we will be seeking to uh, act in that way as to find the opportunities to really push the agenda forward, but also uh, recognise and respect that need for bringing everybody together uh, in a way which is consistent with uh, the UN processes. Following on from that, what, in your opinion, the hosting of the COP means for the UK domestic policy? Well, the UK is actually very well placed to uh, preside over a COP which is focusing on ambition and on action. We are recognised globally as one of the leaders in tackling climate change. Since 1990, we've reduced our emissions by over 40%, whilst also growing our economy by two thirds. Uh, We were the first major industrialised nation to uh, commit in law uh, a net zero target, uh, as you know, um, uh, to 2050. And we have made really positive strides when it comes to particular technologies. So we have uh, the world's largest offshore wind capacity in the UK. And we've also um, been one of the leaders internationally. So uh, in September last year, the Prime Minister announced that we would be doubling our international climate finance to £11.6 billion uh, over the next five years. So I think that gives us a really uh, positive platform to start from. And... Uh, I know that we are going to have to make sure that all of our domestic action lives up to uh, what we expect to see from others. The UK government is very conscious that we will need to make sure that our domestic action is in line with the international expectations that we are asking of others and that others will expect of us. So I expect we will be making sure that uh, we are not just uh, talking about this, but that all of our ambitious pledges have really strong plans of action and that we can uh, demonstrate the tangible results of those actions over the course of the year, but crucially, not just in the year running up to COP26. Tackling climate change is not just about 2020. This is a generational exercise uh, endeavour. And uh, what we want to make sure is that we use COP26 as this hook and this lever to really accelerate action here, but also around the world. So there is a group of countries that are also big emitters, which have been undermining the global efforts to increase the ambition under the Paris Agreement. And if this uh, continues, what in your view should be the response from the international community? I think that is exactly why we have an international multilateral process, which is because Climate change is a global problem which requires global solutions and it requires action from every individual but also every country uh, and every business or organisation within those countries. And the 
UNFCCC has been very clear, uh, and all parties through various declarations and various statements and the decisions from previous COPs have been clear that this is bigger than any one party and that the direction of clean growth, of tackling climate change, of improving our ability to adapt to and respond to the devastating impacts of climate change is a direction in which the world is heading anyway. And so the question for us is more how do we make sure that we use the international structures that we have to continue that direction and to accelerate that momentum and that we absolutely respect the national sovereignty of countries who choose to take a different path. But we are also very clear that that does not take the world off the path that it is on, which is towards ever faster decarbonisation and ever better adaptation. So would you say you remain hopeful about the countries increasing their ambition this year? It's a really good question. And we are just at the stage of engaging with as many countries as possible and trying to understand what their plans are, what the challenges are that they face and what action they intend to take. We were very encouraged that at COP25 in Madrid, through the Climate Ambition Alliance, which has been very much led by Chile, but also is now jointly led uh, with us. We saw, I think it was 114 countries come forward saying that they intended to uh, rethink and revise their their nationally determined contributions, which is their, their pledge, if you like, through to 2025-2030. Uh, but we also saw in the region of uh, 120 countries say that they were looking seriously at um, coming forward with long-term plans, um, hopefully directed absolutely towards net zero um, by 2050 or sooner. But I think what that shows is that there um, there are a large number of countries who are taking seriously the expectation of Paris and are acting on it. But also we need to make sure that the conditions are right such that those countries feel confident and are you know, recognised and celebrated for coming forward with enhanced ambition. And also that we uh, understand what is holding back those countries who do not feel able to at this stage. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this first episode in the Climate Briefing series. Um, We'll be back in a few weeks with some more exciting interviews. If you want to keep up with the work that Chatham House does on the environment, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and you can also follow the Energy, Environment and Resources programme on Twitter at CH Environment, I believe. Please If you liked this episode, please tell your friends. We'd like as many people as possible to hear the insights that we're sharing with you. And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. This was The Climate Briefing and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.